uh, in the news this week. It was 20 years ago that wearing a seatbelt in Britain in a car became mandatory, and yet we're told nearly half of all adult passengers failed to belt up in back seats. Well, I've got a few backseat drivers in my family, they don't belt up either, but um, that's not what it means. Uh, On Monday, there was a fare strike by passengers using first great western trains, cheesed off with the unreliable and cramped service, a, a pressure group calling itself, rather cleverly I thought, more train, less strain. Um, They issued tickets bearing slogans like Worst Late Western and, rather harshly, Route to Hell and Back. Well, there we are. Internationally, and far more seriously, the news has been dominated by the terrible situation in Kenya as the police continue to struggle to restore order following the disputed elections. America, meanwhile, is engrossed in its own election fever as the race for the White House, even though it's nearly a year away, heads towards the all-important Super Tuesday. I guess we'll be hearing more about that on Tuesday then. And then yesterday, again terribly, the appalling news that the latest suicide bombers in Iraq killing dozens of people were handicapped women whose explosives were detonated by others using mobile phones. Now, as we consider Romans chapter 13 this morning, these verses address all those issues, wide-ranging as they are, from wearing seatbelts in the back of a car and in the front of a car to the political turmoil all over the world. How should Christians in Kenya respond to the current political situation? Should Christians simply obey President Mwai Kabaki? Should Iraqi Christians acknowledge and obey the authorities that have been established in their land? And how should Christians react to the President and the United States and his, or her, administration? And back home, should Christian train users take part in the fair strike against first great Western trains? And should we be compelled to wear seatbelts in our car? Well, turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 13 and uh, you'll see how these verses impinge on all of those things. Verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Obey the authorities then. And I can imagine if you're a thinking person and from the little I know of most of you, you are. uh, Certainly, this is what went through my mind. Obey the authorities? What, even when the law is an ass? Am I allowed to say that? Too late, already have. Even when we're being taken for a ride? Even when the authorities are corrupt? Well, before we deal with the details of these verses, and indeed the difficulties which inevitably these verses raise, please remember where this section begins. And if you're taking notes, here's your first heading. Worship and the state. Worship and the state. Turn back with me to chapter 12 and verse 1. It's been the uh, controlling verse of so much of all that we've seen through chapter 12 and now into chapter 13 as well. Chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do you see Paul overwhelmed by 
and thankful for the mercies of God says we should offer our bodies, our whole lives as a living sacrifice. That is worship, he says at the end of verse 1. Do you see it there? And as we've seen again and again in these last weeks, worship is so much more than what we do when we meet for an hour on a Sunday. Indeed, it is quite striking that the Sunday gathering doesn't get a mention in this challenge to worship. That's not to say we're not doing that, but it's not the primary focus of worship as far as Paul is concerned in response to the Gospel. So far we've seen that to be a living sacrifice, to be a, if I can put it this way, a consistent worshipper, will see us loving one another. So in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, for example, we are to love each other sacrificially, treating others as more important uh, than the other. See, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he says in verse 10. Last time we saw that we worship God as we go out of our way to bless our enemies, no less. That's, uh, you'll see that there in verse 14, for example. So we're to treat those who've given us a, a, real, a really hard time, those who've given us real grief, we're to treat them in such a way that they would want to follow the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to bless others. The great blessing that we can uh, bring upon someone is that they come to know the living God. Even if they've made our life a misery, live in such a way that they will come to know the living God. Well now, here in chapter 13, as you flip over, we see the way we relate to the state is an expression of our worship of God, or at least it should be. And so that is something that impinges on the everyday nitty-gritty routine of life. The ordinariness of life is right here in Romans chapter 13. See, Romans 13 calls on us to obey the law and the bylaws of our land, to keep the speed limit, to pay our taxes, not to trespass when we, when we are walking in the glorious hills that are just over the way, to pay our train fares, to buckle up in the car, to honour the authorities. And that is an expression of worship, or it should be, and that, I think, is something we need to hear. We can so easily be lulled into thinking that being spiritual is about how we serve in the church, how we love other Christians, how we try to influence unbelievers for Christ. And yes, those things are issues of spirituality. We've seen that in these last weeks. But these verses make it clear that the ordinary, mundane issues of everyday life are spiritual issues too. I don't know whether you watch the Oprah Winfrey show. It's a daytime television, only, only working one day a week. I have to fill up my time somehow. Um, now, really, I've not watched Oprah for, for ages. Not, not, not since I've moved to Fullwood, anyway. No, now I prefer Deal or No Deal much better. Um, no, really, uh, I haven't watched Oprah for, for ages, but um, it, it used to have a section in it. I don't even know it's on now. It used to have a section in it called Spirit. Um, everybody would drop their voice and talk more quietly and there'd be five minutes at the end of the show with, with soft music and, and thinking about being in touch with yourself, having, having times of quiet meditation, finding yourself, contemplating the spiritual. Now that you see is how the world thinks of spirituality. But the Bible never thinks that way. Well it's not to say that that isn't spirituality but biblical spirituality is about, yes it's about knowing the living God Yes, it's about reading my Bible and praying, 
But it's also about paying my taxes and keeping the law and playing sport fairly and doing a good job at work and everything in life, you see, that's spirituality. As Christians, we have been, uh, we've so easily slipped into the world's way of thinking, a way of thinking that divides sacred and secular and the material from the spiritual. So our Christian friend asks us, how are things going? And we might reply, well, my Christian life's not going so well right now, but every other part of life is going fine, thanks. Now, I know what we mean when we're talking about our Christian life. We mean our prayer life and and Bible reading. But what is this Christian life and every other part of life? Does not the Christian life influence every other part of life? Is not every other part of life the Christian life? Well, Romans 12 and 13 says, oh, yes, it is. And as we head into Romans 13, we're told the way that I relate to the state is a matter of worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. And indeed it should flow out of my being overwhelmed by the mercies of God in the Gospel. I should be so thrilled that Jesus had died for me, then I will actually live out how I should live in the everyday. Worship in the state then is the background. And we understand that better as we see, secondly, the authority of the state. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. I wonder if you noticed it when I read it. Three times in these opening two verses of Romans chapter 13, Paul says unequivocally that the authorities are established by God. Human structures are not self-appointed or even appointed by the people. Look at verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for, this is the first time, there is no authority except that which God has established. says it again. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against, thirdly, what God has instituted. Now, viewed through the eyes of a stable and fair political system, verses 1 and 2 seem reasonable. But what about Christians in Iraq and Kenya and Zimbabwe? Are these these words to be obeyed by them? Well, remember, Paul wrote these words when the state was a totalitarian regime that was really anti-Christian. The Roman Empire ruled the world. And the Romans were cruel and vindictive. And not least of all, towards Jews and Christians. Paul did not write these words wearing rose-coloured 21st century Western democratically and fairly elected spectacles, if you can, fairly elect spectacles. Yet he says, verse 1, into that situation where the Romans ruled, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. You see, when we sing, as we have done already today, the Lord reigns over all the earth and that he is exalted, the exalted king, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, we mean it. And we mean it now. Well, at least I do. Now, God reigns over all the earth. And he has ample power to bring down any government. That's what Paul is saying here. God is sovereign over all authorities, over the mighty Roman Empire and the Chinese dynasties and the Kremlin and the White House. He is sovereign over Zimbabwe and the Sudan and Cuba and Great Britain. And he can bring down a government at any time. Now that is wonderfully reassuring. But that isn't actually what he's saying here. He's not saying be reassured they can be brought down. 
And so this, although it is reassuring, it also raises questions in our minds. These opening verses of chapter 13 raise a question in our mind. If God is the sovereign ruler of the world now, why would he establish some of the monsters we see in our world today and have seen throughout history? At the Caligulas, Herods, Neros and Domitians of the New Testament times and the Hitlers, Stalins, Armins and, and Saddams of our time. Many are not only cruel, but anti-Christian. Well, I think I need to say this, of course, that to say God establishes the governing authorities does not mean that he approves of everything they do. Men are evil and corrupted by power, whether it be the obvious corruption of a Robert Mugabe or the allegedly dodgy financial dealings of a Derek Conway MP, and I did say allegedly there. Power corrupts men and women, But that's not the whole story here. We can't simply say God has established these governments but now they've become corrupt because men and women are corrupt, although that's true. I'm going to stick my neck out a bit tonight, today, tonight. Golly, haven't been going on that long yet. Uh, This morning, I'm going to stick my neck out and say we need to think more biblically about these things and we need to see that sometimes God establishes a wicked regime as judgment on a nation. Now, we'll we'll see why I say that in a moment from Romans 1, but just cast your mind back to the Old Testament and you will see that uh, there are times when Israel have been wicked and turned away from the living God and it happens on more than one occasion. The Lord brings um, a, a, a pagan nation down to bring judgment upon Israel. So this is uh, not something that is sort of completely out of left field. Not sort of bizarre thought that I've suddenly had. It, it's, it's there in the Bible. But, but I think we see it very clearly in Romans chapter 1 as well. Come back with me to Romans chapter 1, page 1129. See, over these past weeks, we found this chapter wonderfully fruitful to help us understand the world as it is. It's been something of a backdrop, something of a, a foundation Uh, to everything we've seen in Romans 12. It is, of course, a foundation to everything we see in the book of Romans. Now, what if you remember, if you've been here over these last weeks, we've seen in Romans 1 the pattern of this world. And the pattern of this world is to reject the one true living God and to turn to other gods. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Talking of, uh, of people who reject God. Although they knew God, that is, they could tell that God was there from creation. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, everyone is a worshipper, says Paul. It's just whether you worship the one true living God or worship something else. And when people reject the one true living God, they always turn to something else to worship. They turn to idols. Now we see that that rejection of God again and again in this chapter. I won't go over it again because we've seen it in previous weeks. But devastatingly, the thing to note for today is God's response how he responds again and again in the same way. As we rebel against him, 
and serve idols. See how he responds, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over. And verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. See what this is saying? When we refuse to follow the one true living God, then he gives us over to ungodly living. It's as if he takes his restraining hand off society and gives us over to a life without restraint. Now we've seen this being played out in, before our very eyes in this nation over the past 40, 50, 60 years. And those of you who are older than me will, will be able to see this much more clearly than I have. As a nation we have collectively rejected the Lord and his laws. Now look, I don't have a romantic view of life in Britain 40 or 50 years ago. I know that back then the church was hardly a dominant factor in our society. But I doubt that many would argue that in the past four or five decades there has been in this nation an increasing departure from acknowledging God and his ways. Though we were never really a Christian nation 40 or 50 years ago, but there was at least an acknowledgement that, 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 that God was somebody to be taken seriously and, and his law was something that we ought to follow. We've, we've done away with that now and so God has given us over to ungodliness. So there is little to restrain us from the ungodly, debauched and promiscuous lifestyle that is so rampant in Britain. Pick up your newspapers and see how things that we were ashamed of 40 years ago, things that were only done behind closed doors, I know they happened, but they weren't done anywhere else, they now happen openly and are paraded and even boasted about on the front pages. Tabloid newspapers used to have pictures of nude women only on the inside, on page three. Now they are on the front page for all to see in the newsagent stand. So when I go and buy my newspaper, I cannot but see nude women. Uh, watch your television sets and notice how the smut and innuendo of people like Benny Hill and, the, and Frankie Howard is tame compared to the foul language and blatant sex in programmes today. And if you really want to see it, uh, then, and I'm not suggesting you do this because it's a complete waste of time, watch Big Brother. It's a pathetic programme where things that go on in that house that people watch hour after hour would actually only ever have been done in private and in, in secret. We certainly wouldn't have paraded it and called it entertainment, would we? Brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 1 is being played out before our eyes and we have been sucked in, barely realising how bad it has become. Now, this prayer was sent to me recently. I first hear it, heard it some years ago, actually, but, but I was glad to be reminded of it. It brings home how we have accepted this moral decline as the norm, not even shocked by it anymore. It's a prayer by an American pastor, Pastor Joe Wright, and he prayed it while opening a new session of the Kansas Senate. Now, it's written into an American context, but most of it translates. And remember, this is not a prayer he prayed in church, this is a prayer that he prayed uh, to the Kansas Senate. Let me read it for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. 
We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it politics. We've coveted our neighbours' possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of speech and expression. We have ridiculed the time-honoured values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Amen. Now I wonder if that prayer does for you what it does for me. It demonstrates where a society goes when God takes his restraining hand off it. There is now nothing to restrain us if we do not follow God and his ways. Now do you see how the judgment of unrestraint is affecting us? And do you see how it is possible, not always the case, but possible, that when the Lord uh, judges by by taking his restraining hand away, it might just be that he allows governments and authorities that are not Christian to do that judging. God then has given us over to the things of Romans chapter 1 and part of that is giving us over to the authorities that God establishes in a nation. So as we flip back to Romans chapter 13, we have many in government in this nation who insist that there need be no link between private morality and public service. So that's what we find now, isn't it? Here's the point. God can establish authorities to bring judgment upon a nation. He did it to Israel and they were taken into exile. And that, I think, explains some of the intricacies of Romans chapter 13. Now, I've not said that every government that is immoral has been put there as a judgment upon the nation. But it is possible, do you see? Now look, these things are complex, but uh, here is a clear command of universal application. Verse 1, again, chapter 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. So there is little room in the Bible for the rebellious Christian. Christians are not to be anarchists or subversives. And if we insist on rebelling against the authorities, then, verse 2, we bring judgment on ourselves. So no Christian should be part of the fair strike against first great western trains because it is against the law to dodge fares. And if we do, then we bring judgment on ourselves in the form of a fine. And that is right that that happens. In this land, I am permitted to make peaceful protest, and I'm given freedom of speech. So I can speak freely against first great western train fares, if I wish to. But to refuse to pay them if if I use the, 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 the service is not an option for the Christian. For verse 2, when I disobey the law of the land... I am disobeying God. To put it more positively, when I obey the authorities, when I acknowledge that they have been established by God, then I am worshipping God. Paying my train fare is worship, or at least it can be, and I'll fill that out a bit later. Worship in the state, the authority of the state. Thirdly, uh, the ministry of the state, verses 4 to 6. 
See, having seen the threefold statement that all authorities have been established by God, now we see here three times that the state or the ruler has a ministry from God or is actually a minister of God. It's a very striking phrase. Look at verse 4. He is God's servant. Look at uh, the bottom of verse 4. He is God's servant. And look at verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants. Twice here, the word translated servant is the word diakonoi, which is the same word Paul uses when he's speaking of elders or ministers of the church. The authorities then have been given a, have have a God-given ministry. The authorities are servants, just as ministers in the church are to serve God and his people, so are the authorities. Which is why I think in this nation, this nation with a Christian heritage, we call those in the cabinet ministers comes from here doesn't it and those who work in their departments civil servants it's from here how then should the government or a ruler use this ministry of service well again look closely at verse 4 he is God's servant to do you good and the second half of verse 4 he is God's servant an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer that's what Uh, the government has been set up for, any authority has been set up for by God. That's why they've been given authority, to do good and to punish evil. That is the role of the state. To do good, well the ultimate good, is to lead people to Christ. That actually is the way the word good is used in Romans. That's why God has appointed the authorities. That's the big agenda for his world. That is what he's always working towards. So the authorities have been set up so that people can know the living God. When there is peace for a peace in the land, we can get on with proclaiming the gospel. That's the point. Now listen to the way the old prayer book then taught us to pray for the state. I do think we need to learn from some of these old prayers because I'm not against extemporary praying, uh, but uh, too much of our praying is actually quite pathetic and not really as biblical as it should be. Well, look, here's a biblical prayer. It comes from the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer and the, um, the prayer that is prayed uh, in the communion service. We beseech thee, the, the language might be a bit strange, but, but hang on with it. The bese- we beseech thee to save and defend all Christian kings, princes and governors, and especially thy servant Elizabeth our Queen, that under her we may be godly and quietly governed, and grant under her whole council and to all that are put in authority under her that they may truly and impartially minister justice to the punishment of wickedness and vice and to the maintenance of thy true religion and virtue. Do you hear that? To the maintenance of thy true religion and virtue. That's why the state is put there to maintain true religion. Real Christian values. Now that's how we're to pray Christianly for the government. And may I say to those who lead public intercessions, please note, Christians are to pray that the government would pass laws that will help and not hinder gospel ministry. Christians are to pray that the government are to keep peace so that gospel proclamation may continue unimpeded. That's what this prayer is about, you see. And that's because the reformers knew their Bibles. They knew Romans 13. That is what it is to pray in God's will because that's why God has established the authorities. So when the state passes laws that are anti the gospel, 
then we can legitimately refuse to obey. Just as you would refuse to obey any minister of the gospel who commanded you to do something contrary to the gospel. Now, of course, uh, in the Old Testament, Daniel is our great example. Living in exile in a pagan land, Daniel obeyed the law of the land. He knuckled down, caused no trouble, did very well, flourished in the political arena. But the moment a law was passed making it illegal to pray to anyone other than King Darius, well, as you know, Daniel would not keep that law. So, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, submit to the authorities. We must keep the law of the land, even if we don't agree with the authorities putting an extra penny on the rate of income tax or their policy on Europe or the speed limit on the Rivlin Valley Road. We must obey. But if the state commands us not to worship the Lord, at that point I must disobey. Because that's not the job of the state. The state's been put there for good, for people to become Christians. If the state passes an ambiguous law that means that faithful proclamation of the gospel could be interpreted as inciting racial hatred, then I must continue to proclaim the gospel and face the consequences. If the state passes laws which may see me prosecuted for refusing to marry those in same-sex relationships, I must be ready to be imprisoned. Just as Daniel was ready to be torn apart by the lions, I still get a better deal than Daniel, don't I? much prefer prison than torn apart by the lions. But on everything else I am to obey the law of the land because the authorities have been established by God and they are God's servant. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. See, the conscience or the motive is what makes sincere Christian obedience worship. Loads of people do the right thing because they fear getting caught. Many keep to the speed limit because they fear getting points on their licence and a £60 fine. But the Christian should keep to the speed limit, verse 5, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Because they believe that, that, that God has put the authorities there. Do you see, a renewed Christian mind tells me the authorities have been instituted by God. To rebel against them is to rebel against God, so I will stick to the speed limit out of commitment to God. And that, frankly, is why people who put a Christian fish sticker on their cars and then exceed 70 miles an hour on the motorway are a disgrace to God. What sort of witness is that? If you can't stick to the speed limit, please take the Christian fish sticker off. It would be better to stick to the speed limit and have it on, but if you can't do it, take the fish sticker off. Now look, if that's the detail, please note the bigger point. The bigger point is this. Morality in and of itself is not worshipping God. It is not obeying the law that is worship. The vast majority of Brits keep the law the vast majority of the time. And I'm glad they do. It makes life a lot more pleasant. But we are not worshipping God if we only keep the law to stay out of trouble or any other motive. Keeping the law is only worship when I do it because I want to obey God. That's verse 5. And so Paul says, verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities of God's servant who gives their full time to governing. What a huge, explosive issue that would have been to the Christians Paul was writing to. Who wants to pay taxes to the Romans? Especially when they've come in and occupied your land and forced their laws upon you. 
But Paul says you may not want to pay your taxes, but pay them because God is sovereign. He established the governing authorities. And so in paying your taxes, you are paying what you owe to God's agent. That's verse 6. It's clear, isn't it? Christians should accept their tax liability. There's no justification for paying the odd job man and the gardener in cash in order to avoid the VAT. That is a spiritual issue. That is a matter of worshipping God or not. But we so easily compartmentalise life. We live as if it's more a matter of worship to put money in the collection bag at church than it is to be honest with my taxes. But you see, paying my taxes is my spiritual act of worship, just as putting money in the collection bag is. So next time you complete your tax return, say to yourself, as I do this honestly and fairly and squarely, and with a right conscience, then I'm worshipping God. It's great, isn't it? It's a bit late for some of you, because uh, some of you would have just got your tax return in uh, about three days ago. As the, uh, uh, but, but next time. See, you can wake up in the morning, you can read your Bible and pray, and you can be saying, I'm, re- I'm, I'm worshipping God now, and then you can close your Bible and stop praying and do your tax return as you should, and you can carry on worshipping. It's great, isn't it? Indeed, Paul says, do that with the whole of your life, verse 7. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Well, that's for next time, really. That leads into our next talk from verse 8. For now, let me ask you, how are you doing in your worship of God? How are you doing in your worship of God? Are you paying your fares? Are you not dropping litter? Are you being honest with your tax return? Are you wearing your seatbelt? Are you making sure you don't trespass when you go walking? That's worship of God if it's done with the right conscience. Let's pray together.